This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, while the pandemic forced the closure of indoor music venues throughout the city, some businesses pivoted to operating successful outdoor venues under temporary permits from the city, but their futures are now uncertain. As the virus surges throughout the state, the Department of Corrections said that there are now more than 50 prisoners who have tested positive for the disease. The vast majority of New Orleans public high schools will require vaccinations or weekly COVID-19 testing for students participating in extracurricular activities. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hello, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. Michael, up first with you. In government news, several businesses either started or continued operating outdoors during the height of the COVID closures. And it was a great success for some, for example, the broadside. Now, however, they may be stopping due to some zoning issues. Can you explain what happened here? What's going on? Like you said, there have been a few places in the city that um, during the pandemic started offering more live outdoor music. This was largely seen as a much safer way to go see music and to be in a crowd than to be inside a a normal venue. Um, Like you said, the broadside, which opened up right across the street from the Broad Theater um, is a great example of that. So, you know, the Broad Theater is an indoor movie theater, was not doing well during the pandemic uh, because of, you know, business restrictions and and safety protocols. And so they opened up this other outdoor space. Um, Another example is Zoni Mash, which is a a brewery that started regularly hosting live music. But then in in July, a couple pieces of news came out. First, Zoni Mash posted on social media that they were canceling the rest of their July music schedule because of issues dealing with the city around their permitting for outdoor music. And then we spoke with the Broadside, uh, who said that they were also facing issues with their permitting status as well, um, and that they were going to be closing down for some renovations for the month of August and half of July with the hope of reopening in September. But as we reported, there are still some big issues around whether the Broadside, Zoni Mash, any of these other live music uh, venues are going to be able to reopen uh, or reopen in the long term. So uh, initially they were all sort of special permit uses, but now there's a reinterpretation of those zoning laws. No, so, so basically what happened is in, in 2019, um, the Department of Safety and Permits changed its, an inter- its interpretation of existing zoning laws to more or less outlaw regular outdoor live music in the entire city except in the French Quarter. And that was so all prior, prior, to the, prior to COVID. This was prior to the pandemic. And this was something that we were covering as a separate issue. Um, It it was a big deal when it came out at the time, um, came as a shock to a lot of people, you know, New Orleans is obviously a music town um, and the safety and the Department of Safety and Permits, again, you know, quietly decided that they were going to reinterpret a part of the law that said if you were hosting live entertainment, you have to close your windows and doors. Now, most people read that part of the zoning law and assumed that only applied to indoor music, again, because of the reference to windows and doors. However, in 2019, the Department of Safety and Permits decided that that also applied to outdoor music. 
And since you can't close windows and doors to the outside, um, that meant that live outdoor entertainment wasn't allowed um, by right anywhere in the city except for in the French Quarter. Although even in the French Quarter, you have to go through um, a, you know an additional uh, process there. Um, so, so basically, the end result is that um, in order to host live outdoor entertainment, you need a special event permit. However, special event permits are capped at a maximum of eight a year, and each of them are only good for three days in a row. So even if you scheduled you know, all of your events three days you know, in, in a row, you'd still get a maximum of 24 total days that you could host outdoor live entertainment. So what happened next with special permitting rules? So then COVID hit, right? And, and uh, the city decided that in, in part of its efforts to combat the virus was to uh, encourage people to hang out outside more. You know, there was, if you remember the city encouraging people to go to parks, um, you know, and, and anything outdoors, basically just don't go inside. So what they did was they lifted the cap on um, the special event, how many special event permits you could have per year. Um, and basically the way it's working now is that you apply for a special event permit it's good for an initial 10 days, and then it can be extended for a six month period. So for businesses like the Broadside and Zoni Mash, they were able to get special event permits that were good for six months at a time, um, basically allowing them to have this, this live outdoor music. But those are temporary COVID rules. Okay, and those are now being uh, revisited because they, they can't continue to operate under special permitting. Is there any effort to change this to allow them to have a normal permit? Yeah, so, so there's the short-term temporary rule issue and then the long-term, you know, uh, permanent rule issue. I'll, I'll tackle the, the short-term problem um, first. So in the short-term, like you said, we've seen, you know, emails, internal e administration emails that showed that in May, when the pandemic was looking a lot more optimistic, um, people were getting vaccinated, transmission rates were low, um, there was talk of getting rid of this rule. So, I mean, what that indicates to us is that when the coronavirus pandemic does actually start winding down, this rule is gonna go out the window. However, um, obviously we have the Delta variant now, um, things are not looking as good as they were in May. And so I don't think that in the immediate future, they're gonna get rid of these pandemic rules. However, again, you know, somewhere on the horizon at some point, we know these rules are going to end, which brings us to the long-term issue, which brings us back to this 2019, you know, rather bizarre, Interpretation um, for safety and permits. Um, now, basically, I, I don't know of anyone who doesn't think that there needs to be some changes around this interpretation. Um, you know, it, shortly after this came out in 2019, um, the city council directed the city planning commission to study, you know, more comprehensive changes to the city's zoning laws that would allow outdoor music to be able to exist um, in more places than just the French Quarter. So the CPC uh, went ahead and did that study throughout 2020, um, and they finalized a study and package of recommendations in January 2021. Um, now, the way that you know changes to zoning laws work is that, or how they usually work, is that the city council will ask the city planning commission to prepare a study and recommendations. And then in order for those recommendations to actually become law, the city council has to take another vote to accept those recommendations. Now, the second part of that never happened. The city council hasn't taken a vote on these CPC recommendations that came down in January. Um, so, you know, again, the CPC, these recommendations, 
I won't get into all the details, but they would more or less allow businesses like Broadside and Zoning Mash to exist in the long term, to, to be able to have outdoor live entertainment in the long term. Um, but again, until the city council takes action, um, those won't become law. And so far, the council hasn't taken a vote. Michael, so you talked to Jay Banks from the council a little bit. What He, he told you that, that the reason that they hadn't taken action on these recommendations it, it had to do with the a request from the Cantrell administration? What was that? Yeah, so uh, Mayor Latoya Cantrell's administration, according to Jay Banks, asked the city council to, to kind of step back from this issue and to not take any action. And the reason that they gave is they wanted to rewrite the city's noise ordinance um, at the same time that they would be, you know, revisiting these outdoor live entertainment um, rules. So a little bit of background there is that the city has a noise ordinance which basically governs where and, and, and when um, you can have any sort of loud noise. So this has to do with music and entertainment. It can also have to do with if you have your lawn. Yeah, if you have six dogs in your backyard that are constantly barking, that could violate the noise ordinance. Um, so, you know, it deals with a lot, but it, it was made in the 1960s. And um, from what I've read and what I understand, um, it is pretty much impossible to enforce um, given, you know, a, a bunch of different regulations within this law that, that just really aren't enforceable. Um, apparently the, the like decibel noise, um, the, the methodology for measuring noise levels is, is completely out of date and requires a form of technology that doesn't really, isn't really used anymore. So, I mean, that's just one example, but apparently, well, and, and if I remember correctly, there there's, there's zoning districts listed in the, in the noise ordinance that no longer even exist under the current CZO. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, uh, I think there are also issues around whether there's racial bias in these rules. Interestingly enough, I think there there are more restrictions on 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 uh, like bass um, rather than treble in music, and which huh. can be associated with music that you know is, is made by black people, um, like hip hop and bounce music. So there are allegations also that the rules were written in a racist manner. So you know all sorts of issues very wide agreement that the noise ordinance needs to be rewritten. Um, but that's not a zoning issue. So that's not something that's covered by the city planning commission. The, the noise ordinance is managed by the health department. And so basically the, the process here would be the health department bringing um, proposed changes to the city council and then the city council voting on them. But uh, that's going to be a pretty long process. Um, you know, it, we're talking about a very high profile law here with a lot of implications for a lot of people's businesses and the way they live. And you can bet that this process is going to be months long, if not years long, um, to actually get done. So, you know, I think there are some questions around whether we should allow this live outdoor music rule. Um, this reinterpretation from 2019 to exist until the city can finally get its act together and rewrite a law that people have been trying to rewrite for decades. Especially in light of the Delta variant. Right. I mean, another argument for acting now would be, you know, the health department is supposed to lead these revisions and do they really have time right now, given, um, you know, what's happening in the pandemic? Um, you know, so, so, you know, and, and if you look at the CPC recommendations, the, the CPC is fully acknowledges that a rewrite of the noise ordinance is ultimately going to be necessary. Um, basically, what they've suggested is, in the meantime, you should basically more or less expand these temporary COVID rules 
um, and make them, you know, long term and, and make them not tied to the pandemic. Right. So when the pandemic ends, you know, you wouldn't just have a drop off of these rules like immediately ending. So, you know, again, there, there's agreement that a long term solution to the outdoor live entertainment issue has to be tied to the issue of this noise ordinance. Um, uh, however, there's disagreement over whether there should be some sort of temporary action to make sure these businesses that have invested, you know, this money and time into building these spaces um, can last. Getting, getting back to sort of the base issue here, none of this is really that much of a problem. I mean, considering that the city isn't really enforcing the noise ordinance um, and there are these special permits, nothing, none of this is really that much of a, a problem without this reinterpretation, which was kind of done... I mean, th this was not a mandatory reinterpretation, as far as I understand, from 2019, and it was kind of done off the books. Do we know what preceded that? Like, do we know what, what, why they decided to do this reinterpretation at the time that they did? You're right. Yeah, there, there was no reason for the safety and permits, uh, the, for the Department of Safety and Permits to actually go reinterpret this law. And like Charles is saying, we haven't been able, the city has not been able to provide us any written, any documentation at all of when and why this reinterpretation happened. But like Charles is saying, yeah, this all goes back to this 2019 reinterpretation. And what's a little odd is that I talked to Ashley Becknell, who's the city's chief zoning official. And the way that she talks about this now is basically, you know, she's basically like our hands are tied behind our back by this interpretation of the law that we made in 2019. You know, I was basically asking, is there anything that your department can do um, to help these businesses stay open? Um, you know, if these temporary temporary rules go away, and she was basically said, no, the city council will have to change the zoning ordinance. Um, but again, that's a little bizarre since we're in this issue because the D Department of Safety and Permits took this unilateral action to reinterpret a law um, in this way that you know does not seem consistent with the original intent of the law. Um, well, and yeah, I mean, the city planning commission has repeatedly said as much that that they don't understand why this reinterpretation was made in this way. And it doesn't seem to be, you know, it seems to be fairly obvious in the in the zoning ordinance that uh, the uh, the requirement for uh, you know doors and windows was intended for venues that are hosting music indoors, not outdoors. What what are what are the politics of it? Like, why would this interpretation that seems to go against, you know, at least what the planning commission would um, would say it is is it intended to do? I mean, it seems like they're. It, it was done for a specific reason. Do you have any? Yeah, I mean, what, what are like the broader interpretations of people of people in the know? I think that the um, at the January City Planning Commission, there were actually a number of organizations that came out against the City Planning Commission's recommendation, and it was mostly neighborhood groups, neighborhood associations who were worried that you know the changes being recommended by the CPC would open the door to just unlimited loud music that would, you know, disrupt and destroy their way of life. You know, you know, I saw certain public comments about, you know, being a residential neighborhood with kids, you don't necessarily want a lot of live music um, near where you are. Um, you don't necessarily want a tourist draw um, in certain neighborhoods. But the politics seem to be, again, a, a lot of neighborhood associations lining up almost in favor of these restrictions. I mean, I. None of the, the public comments from these associations were that explicit about it, but they were for the status quo, and the status quo is very restrictive on outdoor live entertainment. And obviously, you know, it, this isn't new. Uh, neighborhood associations have come together to lobby against venues in the past, um, music venues in the past. So 
those aren't exactly new politics, um, but I think that there might be something here with the election coming up, not wanting to get on the nerves of certain neighborhood uh, associations, um, which can be super influential, um, obviously, and very active politically. So that, that's my read on it. If I remember correctly, around the time that this interpretation was done, um, as far as we know, at least, or as far as we can deduce, I mean, there uh, was a uh, uh, something pending in the council for the city planning commission to study a potential ban on outdoor live music in in outdoor live music in areas that are close to or adjacent to um, residential districts. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a law that was looking to like make more. It wasn't even a ban. They were looking to make more restrictions on like how big the buffer would have to be between. Right music space and a residential property and then this, and then this, yeah the department of safety and premise came in and was like no this doesn't matter it's banned everywhere anyway um so yeah i'm not sure if it was connected to that law um there also seems to be part of this where it, it, it almost appeared like the department of safety and permits did this in order to force the city to to take another look at this zoning law i, I kind of tried to explain this before but one of the first places this issue actually came to light um it was uh, central city barbecue um they have that big um big you know gravel outdoor space um and they were just facing the same issue where they didn't know you know how they could regularly you know host live music and i talked to the person who was dealing with their zoning issues and apparently she was told by someone in the Department of Safety and Permits to take this issue to the City Planning Commission so they could have the opportunity to rewrite this law. Again, that just came from this one woman who said that's why she submitted this City Planning Commission application, but it seems like there was some desire in the Department of Safety and Permits to get the, the City Council to rewrite this zoning law um, for whatever reason. In the meantime, these venues like Zony Mash and, and Broadside they're just on hold right now? Yeah, I mean, so so even, so again, it looks like the temporary rules are gonna last at least a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, when you're when you're dealing with a special event permit, there's not just the, the question of the, you know, the difference between a special event permit to host live music versus a zoning law change that would give you the vested right to host live music is that you're really in the palm of the hands of the city. You know, the, the city is, can deny a special event permit for a lot of reasons, right? Where they can't just tell um, a business that they can't do a certain thing that their property has the vested right to do. So I think the position that, you know, the broadside is in is that, yeah, hypothetically, these temporary rules still exist and they should be able to get one of these permits, but they also could be denied and the city wouldn't have to, you know, wouldn't have to take them to court over it. I mean, it would be a pretty simple process of just denying them the special event permit. Um, so, you know, at, at the broadside, for example, as we covered in the story, they want to do all these renovations over the next month. Um, I think it, it's a little hard to know whether you should be making that investment when you really don't know what the long-term uh, um, outlook for your business is going to be. So, so yeah, they're, they're pretty much in a wait and see kind of holding pattern here. Um, but, you know, at, at least at the broad side, they're still optimistic. They're still hopeful. I think they feel like they have a good amount of community support. Um, and I feel like they feel like they've been operating in good faith, you know, trying to be good neighbors. So I, I think they're still feeling optimistic about the long term, but definitely some uncertainty. Just on the broad side, by the way, um, part of the issue here appears to be that, you know, not only do they have this long-term problem that we've discussed in detail getting to these special event permits which are still active um they 
have had trouble even even getting that, right? Yeah, well, so so their first six month special event permit was from like July to the end of the year 2020. They applied for a new one in January 2020 and have been operating since then, although that permit was never even issued officially as far as we can tell and as far as the broadside understands. So yeah, they, they've been pretty much as far as we can tell, operating without a permit, you know, so far in 2021. Now they're reapplying for a new permit, but you know, like I just said, their permit from January is still processing. So yeah, I mean, that's that's another level of uncertainty here, which is just kind of general lethargy uh, in the Department of Safety and Permits, you know, um, which seems to be a pretty common experience with people who have been dealing with that office lately. Yeah, and you know, worth noting that this is not only a, an ongoing, uh, you know, business issue for these businesses like like uh, the Broad Theater that that is having trouble operating in the pandemic. Uh, you know, this is a this is an issue for uh, you know the, the music industry and musicians in New Orleans who haven't had very many places to play for the past year and a half. Right. Good point. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Nick. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. State prisons in Louisiana were down to zero cases among prisoners just a few weeks ago, but a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks with the Delta variant. They're up statewide. What's happening? What are the numbers now? Yeah, so there are now 54 reported cases of coronavirus among prisoners in state prisons, um, and also uh, 50, 54 cases among staff. The largest outbreak is, is at a, a prison called Dixon Correctional Institute, and there, there are um, just over 30 cases uh, in that facility. So as you said, you know, uh, just two weeks ago, the the state prisons were reporting zero cases, and actually, even even at that time, still they um, they decided to end uh, in-person visitation, which they had opened up kind of as 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 things were looking a little better on the on the COVID front around the state. Uh, you know, with this with the surge, they decided to end visitation. They also announced plans last week that they were um, going to reopen a camp at uh, Angola, at Louisiana State Penitentiary, um, to quarantine prisoners and pretrial detainees from, from local jails around the state that have tested positive, which was something they did earlier in the pandemic and was a, was a controversial move. So now we know that there actually are uh, 11 people being held at that camp uh, in, in quarantine. I want to get to Camp J in just a second, but can you tell me first, do they publish data along with the numbers of cases, vaccination numbers? No, they're not publishing it, but we were able to get some numbers. So we know in the Department of Corrections as a whole and all the all the prison facilities, 72% of prisoners are vaccinated. But at the 
Dixon facility where there's the largest outbreak, it's only 57%. And the staff at that facility, it's, it's even lower, it's at 43%. So that's something that we've, we've seen since vaccination started is that the uh, prisoner vaccination rate is, is actually generally much higher than the staff vaccination rate. So you could see how that, how that can be an issue. You have staff coming and going from these facilities um, regularly. All right, let's move to Camp J. Um, what is Camp J? Well, Camp J was a notorious disciplinary camp at Angola that was actually shuttered in 2018. People were held um, in the facility in solitary confinement in, in really sort of horrible and, and extreme conditions. And so when it was closed in 2018, it was kind of seen as this this signal that 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 the prison was kind of moving toward uh, or, or moving against that type of discipline and punishment um, and, and, and away from sort of the extended use of solitary confinement. But so since then, it's been closed since 2018 until the beginning of the pandemic when um, it was reopened and the Department of Corrections says, said that they had uh, retrofitted it, renovated it, uh, put in air conditioning, kind of given it a, a paint job and said they were going to begin using it to quarantine prisoners and pretrial detainees from local jails around, around the state who test positive for, for COVID. And um, when sheriffs don't have a, a good place to quarantine them, to isolate them from the other uh, people in their jail, they, they can uh, send them to Camp J um, to, do their, to do their quarantine. This was a very controversial move, I think, for several reasons. Um, one, the history of Camp J as this kind of punitive, uh, dire place. I don't think sat well with, with people when they said they were going to move kind of sick prisoners to it. And then there was concerns that, that the prisoners weren't going to get the, the medical attention they needed, that they um, were going to be far from hospitals. The, the hospital that uh, prisoners from Angola are generally transferred to is, is in Baton Rouge, which is about, you know, over an hour away. Um, so they, there was this real concern and, and a lawsuit filed against the governor and against um, the Department of Corrections over this plan. Eventually, the, the you know, local jails transferred, I think, you know, according to the Department of Corrections, throughout the time that Camp J was open the first time, there was over, over 300 people who, who, who quarantined there. In court filings, you know, there were complaints of, of the conditions, of unsanitary conditions, of not, not receiving proper medical care. But the Department of Corrections also said that, that everyone recovered eventually, and the judge who was, who was hearing this case um, sided with the Department of Corrections and with the governor and said that, that, that she felt that it was a, a well-thought-out plan and that, that given the, the alternative options, this was, this was the best, uh, at least an appropriate thing for them to be doing. Now, in terms of in terms of who was transferring, I don't know if you remember, Nick. Uh, I don't. But uh, if I remember correctly, Orleans Parish, for one, was not transferring people yeah. there. Were other? I mean, were were most of them coming from more rural parishes where maybe you know maybe access to a hospital was just about the same as as being at Angola, or were people transferring from like Baton Rouge and Shreveport and stuff? That's a good question. I believe that there were there were at least. A handful of prisoners or, or detainees from Baton Rouge. You are right that in, in Orleans Parish they didn't transfer anyone from the jail uh, to Camp J. So I don't. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, what the what these civil rights groups who who filed the lawsuit and who have kind of advocated against Camp J have argued in the past is that that the 
Department of Corrections needs to work with these local facilities to come up with local solutions so they're not being, you know, driven several hours um, and put in this in this, uh, you know, rural quarantine camp. They need to figure out solutions um, locally. And, and, and now there's a pot of money for that, right, under the American Rescue Plan. There's seven seven hundred million dollars uh, going out to states and uh, municipalities of which I can't remember how much Louisiana is is slated to get. But, you know, it's certainly in the tens of millions range um, to to mitigate COVID at local jails. Right. That's exactly right. And that's what so this this group, the Louisiana Stop Solitary Coalition, after the Department of Corrections announced more recently they were, that they were going to reopen Camp J, uh, wrote a letter to local sheriffs urging them, you know, not to not to utilize this program. And instead, they said, you know, we'll try and work with you to, to kind of get some of this money and to, to come up with uh, more more local um, localized solutions to this issue. And what's happening in local jails across the state? We don't know, and we really haven't known throughout the pandemic um, how how COVID is playing out in local jails, which is a really big blind spot, especially considering that um, you know about half of the state's sentenced prison population is in is are being held in local jails. Um, so, and a know, huge number of pretrial people. I mean, we're talking hmm. about you know thousands and thousands of people across the country. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, this has been an issue throughout. I, I've I've reached out to the sheriffs' association several times, trying to figure out um, whether or not they were collecting you know any comprehensive data, um, and have never gotten a response. Um, so, an audit came out recently uh, in in June um, of this year. And kind of detailed the lack the lack of comprehensive data. Apparently, the sheriffs association was giving some information to the Department of Corrections. I'm not entirely sure what it all consisted of, but that information wasn't distinguishing between pretrial detainees and state prisoners. The governor's COVID nineteen equity task force, I believe, asked all the sheriffs for their COVID data, and I think they said that six responded. And you know, there. Obviously, there are dozens of, of sheriffs and, and local jails across the state. So it's really, yeah, it's really, really kind of a blind spot. And given the way that the virus has, has kind of ravaged prisons and jails, it's, um, you know, it's something that, that we really would like, like to find out. But it, worth noting that one of the few that is doing regular reporting is the New Orleans jail because it's under a, consent, a federal consent decree and apparently the uh, the judge has been you know has been requesting their numbers periodically they're not proactively published publicly but you know they can be fairly easily requested what what's the current count at uh, the or the Orleans Parish jail so in in the Orleans Parish jail right now uh, the sheriff Marlon Gusman is saying that there's nine um, detainees who have tested positive um, recently, and there's step, seven staff members as well. Um, so you know, it's not not as high as it was um, sort of at the height of the pandemic. At, at one point, I think there were 90 over 90 um, people in, in the New Orleans jail who had tested positive. But I think that they were hoping that this thing was was over and that that they they could keep their their numbers to down, down to zero. As part of those uh, letters to to Judge Afric, are they reporting hospital transfers uh, of COVID patients as well? No, this one at least did not 
report any hospital transfers. I think that when they were doing regular updates, kind of at, you know, at the height of the pandemic, they were reporting that. So I don't know if the, the, the fact that it's not in the letter indicates that, that there weren't any or that, um, or, or that, that they're just not reporting it. That they're just not reporting it, but... Yeah, I mean, that, that, would, be, that would certainly be interesting to know because obviously the Orleans jail is going to be drawing out of the most, uh, you know, the most vaccinated population in the state. So it would be, I think it would be probably important to report, you know, how many of these cases are going, are, are becoming serious or critical. Right. I mean, yeah, I also, and I, I did ask the Department of Corrections whether or not they had numbers for whether or not the cases, both of, of the prisoners and, and staff, what, how many among the active cases were vaccinated. And uh, they didn't have those numbers off offhand, but it's something that I'm, I'm interested in. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Karen. Marta, we're on the verge of opening for the school year. Schools are just about to start opening. And yesterday, New Orleans high schools announced that they're going to require vaccinations for extracurricular activities. Tell me what the new announcement said. Yeah, so we had um, actually an update uh, just now is that all um, 24 of the city's high schools that are under New Orleans um, public school system have signed on to this letter that they will require vaccinations for their extracurricular activity um, students. And then they're also going to require vaccines for staff. If you do have, you know, exceptional circumstances, people can opt out and instead go for weekly testing, but that would be required as well. And uh, when you when you say under Orleans Parish School Board, there are what there are a small number of high schools that are under the uh, under state jurisdiction under Bessie, or in one case with NOCA, the legislature. They're they're also not included in this. Do you think that this means that they will revisit that idea and potentially follow suit the other schools? I think it's very possible. Um, you know, that's one of the interesting aspects of our um, city, and actually, I would say our country as a whole, is how much um, of education and things that happen in schools comes down to local control. I think a lot of people learned that during the pandemic, right, with varying mask mandates and requirements and the way schools opened up. Um, and so that extends, you know, a year and a half later to now, where that extends to each individual charter school deciding whether or not, whether they want to mandate vaccines. Um, that's not something the district can mandate for a charter school. So give us the outline then. That means that vaccinations are required for extracurricular activities. And I want you to explain what that means for and why, why that step first. But um, the plan for schools does not require vaccines, but it's masks for staff and students. How, how do the plans differ? Yeah, so um, the reason that I, I talked to two uh, school CEOs and they said the reason that they wanted to focus especially on extracurriculars is because you can't always guarantee that kind of three foot um, spacing or social distancing um, to try and curb the spread of the virus during extracurricular activities like say football practice or say band practice or um, during a football game and so that's why they wanted to focus their resources on those events specifically I think also it's probably easier Two things. I think also it's probably easier to target, you know, with this subset of activities, their elective activities. It's not just kids going to school. I think that might be a little bit uh, more of a harder argument to pass off. And then one of the CEOs I talked to said, you know, a lot of our uh, student leaders are the people that we see participating in these activities. And if 
they're the ones who are going out and getting the vaccine, maybe that would inspire other students to get them as well. Yeah, there's a big social media presence of kids. I think it was a football team who all showed, they showed a picture on, I don't know if it was Twitter or Instagram or something of them all getting the vaccine together and challenging everybody in their league to, to get the vaccine too. Yeah, JFK High School, right? Yep, that's one of one of the city schools, and th- that's definitely part of their how they're how they're trying to angle this and encourage other people to get the vaccine. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a couple elements here. It's one that you know school is mandatory, but extracurriculars are are uh, elective. Also, you know, there's been some talk that you know that that school districts around the state are not going to start mandating vaccines for you know general students. Uh, until there's a full FDA authorization. I'm not sure exactly where uh, the NOLA Public Schools stands on that, but that, I'm guessing, plays into it as well, is that they're still under emergency use authorization. Yes, certainly as of last week, the superintendent said he was not going to mandate vaccines for students, um, charter school staff who he doesn't really have a say over, but he also clarified that he wouldn't mandate it for um, central office staff who he does have a say over. The districts that they're going to be reporting vaccination status by campus, um, I believe beginning in September, that's something they'll have available through the through a state database, but it's just kind of getting up and running right now. But I, I do think it's possible that this could extend to middle school activities um, as well in the coming weeks. But, you know, it would make sense for them to focus these resources on high schools who start practices before school starts and um, are kind of up and going quicker than, you know, middle school activities get going. Okay, and school opens its doors to students next week? Uh, Some have opened this week, and then others are following next week, yep. Okay, Marta, thank you. Thank you. All right, great work. Thank you all. Have a good week. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. There goes. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.